in terms of period pain, I think the first thing that needs to be said is that although it's very, very common for women to experience pain, that doesn't make it normal or healthy. There's a lot of things that are common that are not necessarily healthy. So unfortunately, though, as women, we've been taught that that's just how periods are. And to the point where I have to have a specific question on my intakes to really bring that out, because, you know, it's something that so many women deal with and struggle with that we don't even necessarily even bring it up when we're seeking help for other medical or other issues. Well, in terms like healthy, a healthy period, and I know this is controversial, and of course, there's going to be people who disagree with me, but I would say that a healthy period should have minimal to no pain. So like one to two on the pain scale. Um, and I know that there are women who are listening who they, they've never even thought or imagined in their lives that it would even be possible to have a period without pain because um, I was there. <laughs> um, but I think the first step to addressing this problem is to acknowledge it, to acknowledge that it's a problem, to say, like to have somebody say like, no, it's actually not okay for women to have this much pain. Hello and welcome to the Happy Pair Podcast featuring Stephen Flynn. Uh, and I guess I'm being featured too. But like, it's not about me and Steve. It's about our guest. But we are most grateful to have you here. Genuinely, thanks a million. Thanks for coming along. And uh, Sarah's here also. Hi, Sarah. Oh, hi. Oh, hi, Sarah. How's it going? For a second when you were saying it's about our guest, I thought you were actually going to say about me because I'm the only female in the room. <laughs> oh, good one. Uh, no, I guess it's about... Two men talking about periods. <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah. The irony. But maybe we represent like... Because ignorant. we're ignorant, we can ask the stupid questions that people might assume that they should know. Are we supposed to be talking about this as if we are about to talk to Lisa, or are we talking as Either if we because we've already we've already spoken yeah, about Lisa? Yeah. And it's funny because listening, thinking of you guys talking to her, you know, you are like two little skill kids. You're like, oh, what does this mean? Oh, what does this mean? But, totally, <laughs> but, but I think in a way, it kind of gives that space for for like it's assumed people know this, but it's like. There's no class that you go to. It's like there's no your, your granny didn't sit down and tell you. It's like it's like it's assumed that people know how to cook, but most people don't know how to cook. Well, girls, like we figure it out after a while. But the interesting things is the the pain element. You know what I mean? We figure certain things out. You know, a lot of what she said, I, I would know from years of just like, oh, wonder wonder about this, wonder about that. But like talking about pain and the fact that it's just a given that you have pain when you have did period. you know about cervical membrane and the cervical, cervical mucus and the cervix not to the exact detail but i knew for example that like you only get a six day five to six day window for fertility i knew it was but having said that i was brought up thinking that if a man sneezed on me i'd probably get pregnant so was i i was yeah. brought up in that i was like oh don't brush up against her you, you might, might get pregnant in the same town so it's not surprising I know. and it's mad because i spent so much of my life freaking out about getting pregnant like i have no idea how many times i've taken the morning after pill and like now being with friends and people around me are realizing how bloody hard it is i'm like god why did well, i Well, hearing also that, that men's sperm has diminished by about 60 percent over the last 60 years and that's, go, and that's 70 percent of the time you are infertile you yeah. know that there's any six days that well, oh, seven percent of the time of the yeah yeah cycle. woman's a woman is infertile because there's only six days out of a cycle but i i, I find like lisa really interesting because she comes from that holistic side and you know questioning doctors and you're an, annoyingly we don't hear that at the end of the podcast because we have a little chat at the end with lisa well the lads do uh, but about how you asked a question about why female doctors when a woman goes to a doctor and says like you know i'm having pains 
that they're just taken again, even though it's a female doctor. Oh, yeah, that's just the way it is for periods. Yeah, just take the pill. Yeah. And like her answer is like, well, even though it's a female doctor, they're still learning from the same system that men are learning from. So they give the same answer even though you think that they'd be more in tune with it. Yeah, so I, we're getting wrong information all the time. I really think that was such a nugget of information. Like in my life, as obviously I don't have periods, I don't have a menstrual cycle, but so many of the women in my life complain about like periods that are so awful. And when she talked about that, like endometriosis is a serious impactor on this, but also inflammation. And inflammation is such a byproduct of modern lifestyle. And it's like, you know, there's so many, like if you look at how to, re, you know, reduce inflammation it's like what you eat it's your sleep it's your stress it's your level of movement it's like it's a representation of your health and when she talks about like you anyway i i i loved it i thought it was brilliant wonderful conversation i felt like i was being what were your, what were your favorites there oh i thought it was just brilliant i loved the interaction with you guys with her because i thought it brought you ask questions that i think a female wouldn't ask because they would feel like they should know and that's the brilliant thing. Like you just questioned me about the cervix element. I'm like, yeah, well, I suppose I didn't know that. And I wouldn't think to ask because I feel like, oh, I should know. Yeah, but yeah. I don't. It's the obvious So question. that's the brilliant dynamic between two men asking. And in general, like the fact that we've done ones on menopause now and everything, like you guys ask questions that. Well, I'm fascinated by women's health. Yeah. I really am. Jeez. Yeah. Well, it's yeah. all encompassing because it's like a part of us all, really. Yeah. You know, it's impacting you. You, you, Dave, you've only got women really in your life. <laughs> yeah. Well, I got Steve. <laughs> He's over, and Shawnee's over there. Uh, anyway, anyway, we're going to wrap this up. We're going to give you the wonderful Lisa Hendrickson Jack. She's incredible. Savor this and please do share it with people because it's such an important message. And just to give you a little spiel about who is Lisa. Well, no, let's do that at the start. But this is the start. Okay. <laughs> okay, so now then. So, Lisa Henderson Jack is a certified fertility awareness educator and holistic reproductive health practitioner who teaches women to chart their menstrual cycle for natural birth control, conception, and monitoring overall health. In her book, The Fifth Vital Sign, which I found a fascinating concept, was to look at our menstrual, not our, but look at your menstrual cycle as an indicator of your overall health. Anyway, fascinating conversation. We loved it. We found it fascinating. We're a total Lisa um, fan club over here. And, uh, we and hope I hope you really enjoyed it. I loved it. the bits like about painful periods. I thought that was just so enlightening. And ah, oh, you're going you're gonna to love this. She's great. Anyway, please uh, give a five-star review of our podcast if you enjoy it. If you don't enjoy it, don't, don't tell anyone. <laughs> no one uh, likes a whinge. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, <laughs> hope you enjoy it. Thanks for listening. And we give you the wonderful Lisa. One, one thing I'd love to start with, one place I'd love to start with is the fertility landscape. Because like, say, even Dave was looking there and he was saying by 2050, he was saying most couples possibly may have to go to IVF due to kind of the well, rise of well, infertility. Well, it's predicting uh, that we could be infertile by 2050. And it's saying that over the last 40 years, men's sperm quality has decreased by 50 or 60. Like, you know, they're all kind of doomsday headings. But I wonder if you could paint a more accurate picture of like the, the state of infertility and is it as bad as these headlines are suggesting? I think in some ways it is. Like in some ways it kind of, um, like in terms of if we look at men's fertility specifically. <laughs> um, so, I mean, even when I was um, looking for research when I was writing The Fifth Vital Sign, if you look at old studies, so just, you know, studies that were published in the 40s, the average man in the 1940s had a sperm concentration of something like 113 million sperm. So your typical guy had over 100 million sperm per milliliter. 
um, back then. And if you take the average guy today, he has about a sperm concentration of about 50 million sperm wow. per milliliter, which as you said, it's like a 60 to 70% decline, which is really interesting. And what's also interesting, um, because I work with a lot of fertility clients, is that when they're not conceiving and they get their partner sperm tested, they'll get um, a sperm analysis and they're often told that everything's fine. <laughs> I feel like that's the um, the the party line. They're all told that everything's fine. And in the 2010 World Health Organization document, that's where they get really the um, that's where they get the numbers for the sperm test. They've identified um, that the lower limit for sperm concentration is 15 million sperm wow. per milliliter. Um, and that's really interesting if you think that the average man in the 40s had an average sperm concentration of over 100 million. And now we're saying that the lower limit is 15. Um, so I feel like if this trend keeps going, then what will happen in 50 years? Because if, if nothing changes, then the average man, like if it literally de decreases another 50 or 60%, the average man in 2050 could basically be shooting blanks. I mean, unless we actually start acknowledging that there's a problem. Wow. And is, is it a kind of like, is most of the infertility then kind of like, obviously sperm count has a huge, you know, there's two parties that play. Is the same kind of pattern happening with women as well? Or is it most infertility is down to the man? I mean, from the statistical standpoint, the reason that I often talk about the men is because as, as women, we're the ones that carry the babies. <laughs> we're the ones that get pregnant. So obviously we're going to, you know, we take on all of the you know, we, we really think it's us. So for example, um, the, the miscarriage rate is pretty high and anyone who's had a miscarriage obviously thinks that it's something wrong with their body, something wrong with they did, um, or, you know, something along those lines. And so from the statistical standpoint, it's about 50, 50. So when a couple is struggling with infertility, um, it is about half the time related to the male side. Um, so I feel like that is an important point. It's not just something that's affecting um, men from our conversation, but it, it, I mean, if you think about it, I mean, I have two children and they both look just like their dad. So you're, um, the man does contribute 50% of the genetic material in terms of the broader question of why is this happening? I mean, I think there's a lot of just, I think there's a lot of factors. I don't think that anyone can say that it's just one thing. I think we can look at, um, diet and lifestyle. We can look at those kinds of things. I think we can look at some of the factors, even in terms of the age um, at first pregnancy. So I think it's pretty common and obvious now that a lot of women are waiting until they're a little bit older to start conceiving. Um, I talk a lot in my book about hormonal contraceptives and the role that that can play, um, not in terms of reducing uh, fertility as much, but in terms of delaying the return of normal fertility. So that's something I talk about a lot where a lot of women are on hormonal contraceptives for years and years and years. And then when they come off, no one's telling them that it could take a little bit of time for their body to bounce back. And so I think there's a lot of um, factors, but I do think it's important for us to start looking at male sperm counts for sure. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Fascinating. Genuinely. So, so for anyone listening, who's kind of like wants to kind of optimize their position to, to have a baby, what are basic things that people can start to apply to? Because I, I was kind of listening to various different interviews done and you talked about the need kind of to prepare for pregnancy as opposed to just, you know, we're often brought up in this world where it's like, we're trying not to get pregnant. And then we think as soon as we remove the goalkeeper or not wear a condom or actually, you know, take the train to the end of the line, suddenly we're going to get pregnant. Yay! 
but that's not norm, not often the case. I wonder if you could talk about this. Yeah, I remember being a like a teenager growing up, and literally, you know, it was believed that if you you know if you brushed off a girl, you might get him pregnant or something. Like it was really, it was such a fear, like you know, and you didn't really understand it. Whereas the more I dig into, you know, you obviously this is your your daily, you know, every day you're talking and representing this, but I really don't think that's the case. Yeah, I mean, I had a client say that she, like, I'm pretty sure she said it was her doctor who told her that, you know, when you're in your 20s, you're so fertile, you can get pregnant sitting on a warm bus seat. So that idea is certainly really prevalent. I think a big piece of the puzzle that, that, you know, my work brings to the story is to understand the female cycle and how it works. So I think that's one of the biggest myths. I know I was certainly taught that when I was in junior high, that was, you know, we were told that you could get pregnant every single day of your cycle. There were no safe days, all those kinds of things. And I mean, ultimately then if your body's basically like a ticking pregnancy time mom, then the only solution is to go on a a contraceptive option that gives you protection 100% of the time. But when we look at what the science actually tells us about the menstrual cycle, is that there's only a short window of fertility. So from a scientific perspective, there are six days of the menstrual cycle where pregnancy is possible. So, you know, if I take you through the menstrual cycle, you have um, your period, not your period, I suppose my period, um, but you have the period that lasts anywhere from about three to seven days. And then at, after the period, finishes, you start to, um, in a healthy, typical cycle, move towards ovulation. And so for any of the women listening, you know, if you've ever noticed a little bit of um, cervical fluid, so I mean, I'm, I talk about this stuff all the time, so I'm not sure how comfortable you guys are talking. Yeah, no, I was really enjoying reading about cervical um, mucus. mucus and learning all about that. And I was even Googling, fluid. what is a cervix again? And just, you know, touching up on all this stuff. Yeah, well, I know my husband's really uh, obviously knowledgeable because of me, but he's always like, I don't like the word mucus. So, you know, um, but anyway, so as you approach then ovulation, um, many women will notice some creamy white hand lotion. So that type of fluid or clear, stretchy, like raw egg whites. And when you're going to the bat, like, you know, when you're going to the bathroom and you're wiping, often a, a, quite a slippery sensation is accompanying this fluid. So, you know, one of the unfortunate things about our world is that we're not taught about these things. So a lot of women end up going to their doctors thinking that they have a yeast infection or something uh, that's unusual happening because they're seeing this fluid, not really knowing that it's actually a perfectly normal and healthy part of the menstrual cycle. So the reason why that fluid is important is because when we're producing it, that's called our fertile window. And during that time, sperm can actually survive for up to five days in the reproductive tract. So I know a lot of women have heard like, okay, sperm can live in my body, but they kind of think it's all the time, but it's actually during this fertile window. So um, once you ovulate, that cervical fluid typically dries up and goes away. And then your period would come about 12 to 14 days later. And so, you know, just by me taking you through that quick illustration, What's interesting about it is that there are periods of the cycle where pregnancy is not possible. I think that's um, something that's really important. I think a lot of couples figure that out when they come off their contraceptive and pregnancy doesn't happen right away. They kind of have to, you know, okay, well, I, I thought I would just get pregnant. So I have to kind of look into this more. So that's certainly one of the factors. So in terms of uh, when you're ready to conceive, I think there's a lot of things to consider. Uh, one of the things that I do think is important to say, and I've already uh, touched on a little bit, is that you know if you're using hormonal contraceptives to avoid pregnancy, um, you know if you're in the position where let's say you're in a relationship and you're kind of planning ahead to conceive, I think it is a good idea to start thinking about your choice of birth control method to give yourself a little buffer period, you know six to twelve months at least, 
um, between coming off of your contraceptive method and trying to conceive. And there's a lot of reasons for that. It takes the body a little bit of time for the hormones to normalize. Um, what the research tells us it, is it, it can take anywhere from nine to 12 menstrual cycles before everything fully normalizes in terms of overall cycle length, ovulation, cervical fluid. Um, the second half of the menstrual cycle, the luteal phase has to be a certain length. So there's a lot of things that we don't really think about or know about when we're trying to conceive because we've always been told that you can just get pregnant any day of the cycle. Yeah, totally. That's incredible. And a question that came to me and I'm trying to catch it. I can feel like it's floating around. I, I can jump in with one. Oh, no. I, okay. No, I wanted to try to recap just, just to show that I'm actually learning. So, okay. <laughs> so say, for example, um, a cycle, say typically it can be anywhere from 28 days or 21 days to 35 days, approximately, let's just say. And say a woman typically will be menstruating as in uh, menstruating for about... Five, five to, to seven, seven days, days, I believe you said. And typically it's after that that they start to ovulate. And a good indicator of ovulation is cervical, cervical mucus. mucus. And when the cervic mucus, sperm can live within that reproductive tract for five days. And once that dries up, typically that's a sign of um, ovulation has finished and pregnancy cannot happen. Good. Um, do right. Basically, yeah, you did. That was pretty good. <laughs> that, was, that was pretty good. One thing I think is important to, to think about, ovulation happens on the one day. Um, okay. And actually, when you ovulate, the egg survives for just 12 to 24 hours. So that's that's something interesting, because I think I remember when I was a kid and I was watching like the soap operas, these women would, you know, take their temperature in the middle of the day and be like, I'm ovulating. And you kind of think this ovulating thing would go on for a long time. But ovulation happens on one day. And so what's really fantastic and really interesting about our bodies, um, our, the female body, is that the window of fertility is then extended by the cervical mucus for that additional time. Because if you think about it, if there was only one day that you could actually get pregnant in the whole cycle, that would make it potentially <laughs> quite challenging. Um, so what's interesting from that perspective is, yeah, you could have sex on Monday with your partner. If you have mucus, if you're in the fertile window, ovulate, ovulation happens on Friday, and you can actually get pregnant on Friday because of the sex you had on Monday. Wow, very good. And typically with ovulations, excuse my total ignorance, but is it one egg is released or is it two eggs are released or is it 10 and, eggs? And even, even on the topic <laughs> of that, like I always thought like, I, I'm thinking back to biology and when we had like sex education class, it was like sperm and egg. And then I thought, okay, egg gets released and then sperm goes to egg and then baby starts to grow. So I thought it was like ovulation. It was going to be, you know, ovulation happens on one day, but as you said, it's sperm lives for five days in the body. So it's the five days previous if you have sex to ovulation are the times to get pregnant. Is that right? Yeah. And ovulation day itself is also a good day. Um, but I think it it a lot of a lot of women in particular are trying so hard to time sex on ovulation day exactly because we're kind of like and also the the what we're told is the menstrual cycle is always 28 days. We're told that ovulation always happens on day 14. And so uh, we have a lot of women having sex on day 14, regardless of what's actually happening in their body. So um, the cycle ranges, a healthy cycle ranges anywhere from about 24 to 35 days. And so that means ovulation could happen as early as day 10, maybe even a little earlier, depending on if you're, if you're having a really short cycle or as late as day 24. And they, then, I mean, that's the healthy range. So there's plenty of women with cycles that are outside of the healthy range that ovulate way later than that. So I think um, just from that standpoint alone, it's uh, for, especially for people for whom this is the first time they're hearing this information, it really boggles the mind because um, we're just not taught about this stuff. No, yeah. we really aren't. It really, really, really isn't aren't. like, really like, and I do want to talk to you about 
you know, schools and things like that. But I think think a topic which which I'm fascinated with it and I think is such an important piece in women's health is charting your cycle. And FAM. Is that what it's called? Fertility awareness um, method. Method. Yes. I think it's incredible because, okay, when I think of, and I'm just going to, we're, we're ignorant to this, so we're basic, so we're just going to repeat just to, to validate what we is right or not. So usual means of contraception are like condoms or on the pill, like hormone type pills, or there's, you know, there is lots of other different meta- methods, but like fertility awareness, I was, you know, this wasn't one thing or charting your cycle and understanding that there's only six days you can be pregnant, you know, is were never things which we were thought or withdraw, withdrawal as a, as an, you know, a, a method of preventing pregnancy. And one, one thing that kind of dawned on me is that sense of the contraception. I understand it's very easy but I wonder, does it kind of feed upon modern day culture, hack culture, looking for the shortcut, the easy way, whereas the, the, the FAM or fertility awareness method seems to be a lot more natural and it takes a little bit more time to chart it, but it's not this kind of silver bullet type method. I take this pill and I'm suddenly 100% of the time, I cannot get pregnant. Whereas FAM seems to be working with your natural cycle, understanding your cycle. It seems to be more taking that moment to connect with your body, which seems to be more holistic in my Perspective. And I've seen you even refer to it as like a great indicator of your health in general, of a woman's health in general. So could you talk all about FAM and why it's so important about it, tracking your cycle and how someone would do it? Because I think it's such an important message. Yes. I mean, there's so much I could talk about there. So um, stop me if I if I start going on a tangent. I think there's so much of what you said that's really important. There's so many different, I think that most common, obviously, methods of contraception that we're familiar with are condoms and then hormonal methods or the IUD, hormonal or non-hormonal. And the way that I often describe it is that these methods, the, the methods intended for women, in a way, they make your body what I call resistant to sperm. You know, if you're taking a pill and it stops you from ovulating and it thins your uterine lining um, and it, you know, prevents that conception possibility, then it makes your body essentially resistant to sperm. And I think things have changed quite a bit because I remember when I was a teenager and I was contemplating contraception, um, I actually thought condoms were like a a viable option. (laughs) So um, when I was a teenager and I was making that decision, I had been on the pill as a teenager for period pain, so not contraception. And I did the opposite thing of, (laughs) I think, what most people do because I went off um, the pill for a variety of reasons. I had concerns about the fact that my periods were so painful and I um, kind of wanted to figure out why that was, I, if that makes sense. Like I would go be on the pill and the, the pain would be, you know, not as bad and I'd come off of it and it would be the same as it was before. So I had the sense that it wasn't fixing it. Um, but long story short, I mean, when I decided to come off the pill, I was like, okay, well, condoms are 98% effective. So <laughs> I didn't have any concerns about that, but I feel like um, the younger generation has really been taught that hormonal methods are basically the only viable option. And they're basically being told, it seems, that if you're not on a hormonal method, that it's just a matter of time before you conceive. I feel like they're not even being told that condoms (laughs) work or how to use them correctly, which is uh, crazy. So I think the first thing about fertility awareness-based methods, because I think that's also helpful, there's no one fertility awareness method, so to speak, that everybody agrees on. Uh, Basically, fertility awareness as a concept, it means to understand what's happening in your body. So um, just to, as a concept, it means to understand that you're not fertile all the time, to understand that there is a window of fertility in your cycle and to be able to identify when that is. So I think that's kind of the overarching. And then in terms of the method 
in terms of using it as a birth control method, there are a number of different ways to do that. So there are some methods that utilize cervical fluid only. So you're literally monitoring that sign alone. The method that I teach is a combination uh, the symptothermal method, where you're using cervical fluid, the basal body temperature, the cervical position. Um, and so you're identifying the fertile window and you're adding on a buffer period onto that by using and following the rules to identify when in your cycle you can conceive and when you can't. And I think one of the important things when talking about fertility awareness-based methods, and it might seem strange coming from me, given that this is what I do, I don't think that they're for everybody and I don't think even the women who use it, it may not be the right thing for them at every point of their lives. Uh, because ultimately, it is a different kind of method. When you're using fertility awareness-based uh, methods, you're not making your body resistant to sperm. So you can get pregnant, you know, if you don't understand the rules and if you have sex on a um, unprotected sex on a fertile day. So I think that that's really important as well. And the interesting thing about fertility awareness-based methods is that there's um, no one that's forcing anyone to use them. Um, women choose these methods for a variety of reasons. So a lot of my clients, unfortunately, have had negative experiences with hormonal birth control. Uh, they've had bad side effects. They've tried all these different kinds, brands, you know, it, it didn't work for them. Um, and there's other women who are just really health conscious and they're doing all these things, they're eating organic food and they're doing all this, like they're exercising and all this stuff. And then they realize like I'm taking synthetic hormones every day and it doesn't align. <laughs> so, you know, there's lots of different reasons why women choose this. And I think that it's, it's important from my perspective just to be out there as an option. And I think for anyone who this is new information, you've never heard about it before, you're thinking this chick's talking about the rhythm method, <laughs> you know, it doesn't work, it's not effective, all that kind of stuff. What's interesting is that fertility, modern fertility awareness-based methods are evidence-based, there is peer-reviewed science, and when used correctly, they're up to 99.4% effective. Typical use does vary, and especially depending on the method that you're using, because as I mentioned, there's a lot of different methods. But I think the takeaway is that for women who really want to do this and who are looking for a non-hormonal option, there is one, and you can be effective using it as long as you take the time to learn it. Wow. It's That's amazing how that something so traditional and traditionally done, this FAM method would have been what was done hundreds of years ago if someone did not want to have a child, obviously. But now it's seen as modern versus, you know, the only solution in current day, in the majority of the current paradigm is the but hormonal I don't, method. I don't know if there would have been that much awareness about like what you're talking about, cervical fluid and cervical mucus. Like I've never heard that. Now I'm a male, so you know, and I've never been that curious about this space till, you know, a couple of days ago, like, you know, cervical mucus, it doesn't sound like, you know, I haven't heard my friends talk about, oh, well, are you, are you, how's your cervical mucus at the moment? Like, it, it's not like part of the common dialect, really. So, so maybe could you talk about the three? So, so you said the three means of, of measuring your cycle are, you know, your cervical mucus, your body temperature, and, and then your, your cervical position, because yeah. when you're pregnant, it kind of slightly moves and opens, I believe. So that? could you talk about how someone would do it? If someone, someone's listening, go, okay, this sounds really interesting. Like, what does this entail? Um, well, yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, I took you through the menstrual cycle at some point. So we have period, we have ovulation somewhere in the middle. And then once you've ovulated after that point, you're moving into your period about um, 12 to 14 days later. So just to give you that kind of arc. So what's interesting about the menstrual cycle and what makes it kind of, you know, scientific is that our cycle is governed by this interesting hormonal process that is cyclical. So you know, when a woman has her period, she's shedding the functional layer of her endometrial lining. 
And then as she starts to approach ovulation, what's happening is that her ovaries, um, inside her ovaries, there are follicles and inside those follicles are eggs. And um, as that follicle develops, it's making estrogen. And so the effects that we're seeing in our cycle, the changes in mucus, the changes in cervical position, um, those changes are a result of the different hormonal patterns and hormonal changes. So as the ovary grows the egg, the follicle releases estrogen, the estrogen stimulates the uterine lining to rebuild. Since you just shed the functional layer, um, the estrogen stim stimulates cervical fluid production. And so during the time of the cycle, right before ovulation, estrogen levels are highest and that corresponds typically in a healthy cycle with um, cervical fluid in high quantities. So that clear, stretchy, slippery stuff that I was talking about. Um, and then, you know, once that estrogen level reaches its peak, it's kind of like the thermostat in your house. Like once it, the temperature gets to a certain level, you know, it shuts off. So that sends a message back um, to the pituitary to release a hormone called luteinizing hormone. And um, the greatest analogy that I've heard of that is if you think of the ovary as a balloon <laughs> and luteinizing hormone as a pin. So luteinizing hormone is what triggers ovulation. And then once ovulation happens, the follicle changes in the ovary and um, it changes to something called the corpus luteum. I'm giving you a little science, um, yeah, <laughs> a little science class here. Lots of and big then words. after, yeah, I know, I know. I'll try to, doing great. you know, but I, I think the, 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 the balloon and the pin kind of makes it a little bit easier. Yeah, um, that's nice. But once you ovulate, then what happens is you start making progesterone. So you basically have estrogen in the first half of the cycle, progesterone in the second half. Um, so, you know, again, estrogen is what's causing the cervical fluid to be produced it's softening the cervix and changing the position of the cervix, which I'll talk a little bit more about. And then after ovulation, the progesterone shuts down the mucus production. It's kind of like a tap. <laughs> Once the progesterone goes up, it shuts off that tap of mucus flow. Um, and then the progesterone firms up the cervix and closes it. Um, the cervix is the base of the uterus. Um, I feel like you probably, when you, you were saying like, I haven't heard anyone talk about cervical fluid and like, how's your cervical, cervical mucus. So I'm guessing you haven't heard anyone talk about their cervix in that way either. Um, no, but other, other, way other than in childbirth, you know, you hear the cervix yeah, and it's childbirth. dilating to 10 centimeters and you know, th that's the only context that I really, you know, have heard the cervix be mentioned. Well, and what's interesting about the cervix is, so, you know, for, for anyone's listening who is really curious about this stuff. Um, for a woman who's charting her cycle and kind of actually tracking the cervical position. And I think it's important to mention that the cervical position is an optional sign. So not everyone's comfortable, you know, touching their cervix. So it's not, you don't have to do that if you're not comfortable. Um, but what's really interesting about it is that, you know, if a woman were to check her cervix, so essentially insert her finger into her vagina and check <laughs> to see um, her cervical position, you know, every day for a full cycle, what she would find is that after her period, it's in a lower position, it tends to be firmer to the touch. So kind of like the firmness if you were to touch the end of your nose. And then once she gets into that pre-ovulatory phase, the cervix becomes softer because of the estrogen. And right around ovulation, the cervix is in the highest position in the vagina, softest. And if you were to push your lips together and touch your lips, I'm not going to touch mine because I've got lipstick on. Um, but, if, <laughs> but if you were to do that, um, you know, there's kind of like a little dimple between your lips and it's a lot softer than the base, the end of your nose. And so all of this is to say 
that you can actually tell where you are in your cycle by paying attention to these things. Like that's wow. the whole point of this, you know? That, that's incredible. So, 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 sorry, to, sorry to interrupt you, but like, it's almost like those six days when you are fertile, it's almost like the door kind of opens. Like, cause even the metaphor, which you're using your mouth, like, cause you can stick your finger through your mouth <laughs> and your nose is solid. Like, so I'm kind of going like, you know, obviously the days when you're fertile is when you said it, the cervix is highest and it seems like the opening is open. And then the other days it's kind of closed. Is that exactly. Like a- yeah. And I love using analogies. And so, um, well, from the, there's a lot of different ways the cervix is referred to, you know, in the literature. So one is like a biological valve that either opens or closes. Um, and in my training, you know, they talked about it as nature's gate. So it's like, is the gate open or closed? And I think about like a nightclub on a Saturday and is the bouncer out there or not? What's important about that is that in the window is the only time that sperm can actually pass through the opening of the cervix. So the cervix is literally open during that fertile window. So the cervix is the bouncer. The cervix cervix, is the bouncer to get into the the nightclub cold egg. Yeah. Or we could take it a step further and even say um, it's a combination of the cervix and the cervical mucus that's the bouncer. Um, Because the mucus has different qualities. So you can see it during that window. The cervix is open. Things are flowing. But when the cervix is closed, so after ovulation, basically the door is shut. The cervix is firm back again, like your nose. It's in a yeah. lower position. It completely changes. Nightclub's so, closed. Exactly. So after that, um, the sperm can't physically get through. And one way to think about this is it makes a lot of sense. So, you know, the uterus is an internal organ. If it was just open all the time, we'd be, you know, our bodies would be open to potentially to infections and all those kinds of things. So it's really only open during the only time of the cycle where it would need to be during the fertile window. Um, So this gets back to your question about birth control, because most women when they're growing up and men and everybody have not learned that there's actually a period of time in the cycle where pregnancy is actually impossible. So after ovulation, when the cervix closes, um, you know, the once the egg is released, if it's not fertilized, it disintegrates in a day. And so that second half of the cycle, pregnancy is impossible. So is that almost like, because you like the cycle, as Stephen said, and you have said, it's it can be from somewhere from twenty one to thirty five. Oh, oh, sorry, twenty four to thirty five days, and only six days you're fertile. So would that mean that there's on average at least fifteen days of your cycle that you cannot physically get pregnant, even if you wanted to. Correct. Yeah, um, and so you know, for people who want to use this method for birth control, there's obviously more to it because you know. Every cycle isn't always perfect. You have to, you know, understand how to manage the pre-ovulatory phase um, and the post-ovulatory phase. Like you have to be able to confirm ovulation. So there's when you're using it for birth control, it's not like, okay, I listen to this podcast and I'm good to go. So we do have to add a buffer period onto that. But literally, yes, to what you're saying. And this has implications for people who are trying to get pregnant. Um, because like I said, you know, if you're you know, following what we've all been told and you're having sex on day 14 and you're kind of not really tracking what's going on in your cycle, it is possible for some couples that they're missing their window and inadvertently using that birth control method. Um, when really, if they were paying attention to their mucus and their cervical position, they could better identify when in the cycle they could get pregnant. Cause it is possible to have sex on these other days of the cycle that are out of the fertile window and not get pregnant. That's the whole point of and the, t- the, two, the, two biggest indi- the two biggest indicators are number one, like you're fertile when you've got cervical mucus 
And number two, the second indicator is your cervix will be higher and, the last and it'll be sore. Basal temperature. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. That well, was so it, for, it? yes, um, for someone who's trying to get pregnant, uh, I would say pay attention to the mucus. So for anyone who's listening right now who's trying to get pregnant, um, you know, start paying attention. And when you see that cervical fluid, have sex. Like, don't wait for the predictor kit. That can help too. But sometimes you have mucus before the kit goes positive and stuff like that. So just do that. Um, the cervical position is also very helpful. So, you know, if you're comfortable checking that for sure, when it's open, when it's in that high position, that's a sign of fertility. The basal body temperature is helpful to confirm ovulation, but it doesn't predict it. So you wouldn't want to wait. And so basically for anyone who isn't familiar, you would take your temperature first thing in the morning every day. <laughs> and it's not your temperature in your ear or under your arm. It's your temperature inside your vagina. Um, well, so there's three possible ways to do it. The most common are orally, so or axillary under the armpit or vaginally. I would say the majority of my clients do orally. Um, the vaginally is an option for sure. And it can, oh, okay. I thought it had to be in the location. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's your body temperature, so there's different ways. Oh yeah. Okay. Gotcha. To do it. Yeah. Good effort, Dave. Um, no, I was but vaginally is a legitimate. <laughs> No, don't worry. People, right people do right. that. Well, I assumed you'd have to put it there, like right <laughs> in the location, like in the zone. Vaginal temperature only. Yes. Yeah, well, sorry. <laughs> no, I feel I'm going red. <laughs> but I'm, I'm validating what you're saying because it's a, you. it is a, a valid way to test it. And there are actually devices that are designed to, you know, to test it specifically vaginally. So that's that's totally fair game. Um, but the, the basal body temperature is helpful to confirm ovulation. So um, if you take your temperature every day, what's interesting is before ovulation, the temperatures won't be the same all the time. They'll kind of fluctuate, but they'll fluctuate in a certain range typically. And then after ovulation, um, progesterone has a thermogenic effect on the body. Great word. So back to science class. <laughs> thermogenic so sounds like it's hot. Science. It's, <laughs> your, your body temperature actually does increase after ovulation. And so you have the sustained rise. So if you were looking at a chart, um, if someone was tracking their temperature every day, you would actually see one group of temperatures that's a bit lower. And then after ovulation, you'd see another group of temperatures. I, I wonder, higher. does that link with the sense of, you know, the society, like you look hot tonight. And I wonder, <laughs> is that sense like back when your mom was going, you look like you're fertile now because your temperature is warmer and I can feel it. You know, I wonder, is that anyway? Well, Could I, be. Think, Good I, effort. I think that Thanks. there's, I mean, I think that there's, there is something to what you're saying. It's probably less linked to the temperature and more linked to the high estrogen. Because yeah, estrogen well, makes the skin hormones. all supple. And there's there's all this research about how men can tell, not consciously, but they can tell when women are in the window. And there's it's crazy stuff. Like they'll like the way they smell more. They'll even think their voices sound better. Wow. It's really interesting and it, stuff. And is it, I've often heard that there's like a week in a woman's cycle where they're more horny, like their libido is higher. And is that within that same window? Is estrogen driving that? Estrogen is yes. the horny hormone. Well, yeah. testosterone, then, I thought was more associated with it. Well, women make testosterone too, but we make like a 10th of it compared to, compared to the men. Um, but when estrogen's highest, a lot of women do report that they feel more aroused, that they, um, yeah, that like, that that's the time of their cycle where they want to have sex more or that their partners are more interested also. But then, you know, there, it doesn't mean that you're not 
at any other time of the cycle, I think, for most women. And is that typically linked to the time when their cervix is open and their yep. cervical mucus? So it's all this, like it really is nature just nature like a flower opening to, to be fertilized. Part of me thinks like humans, we're just literally responding to hormones. Like we tend to think this, we have this sense of agency, but really we're like just following around these hormones going, oh, what's my hormone telling me to do now? Hormones are like our boss. Maybe. Well, I feel like a lot of, of, a lot of people then kind of dislike that stuff because of that because it's like I'm not just run by my hormones like I'm an individual I have agency which we do and so I, I think that it is important to kind of keep that in mind you know there are studies on the arousal cycle although I do in the real world experience that I've had with women I I do feel like a lot of women do have that experience of feeling more aroused in the window but you know there's some studies contradict that and say that women are more feeling it on their period. So, so I think the the bottom line is we do have these hormonal um, kind of currents, these undercurrents, but obviously we're still like, we're not just totally run by these hormones. Wow. Brilliant. I've got so many things I want to talk to you about. I'd love to talk. Okay. So you talked about FAM and it sounds like a wonderful method. I wonder just to kind of increase the, the, uh, what's the word? Like, I wonder if you could talk about contraception pill, because it's often deemed as like, oh, you just take the pill and there's no side effects. And it's just like, that's what everyone does. And it just works. I wonder if you could talk about, you know, the challenges of it. Depression, weight gain, the possible side effects. Because I was listening to you talk earlier and you were talking about how that often the pill was seen as part of the sexual revolution. And yet, ironically, it reduces libido. And there were studies showing it reduced clitoral length. And it was like, and it that, was, is, that was amazing and fascinating and the first time I'd ever heard of it. So I wonder if you Before could, we get on to that, can I just ask one tiny thing, that, you know, just one tiny little thing because we're on the topic of all this famine and measuring your cycle and I know that a key part of this is it's a great indicator of your health and I just wanted to have a quick little chat about that because I know like, you know, it, it can, it's really important that we're healthy, you know, to be fertile and how is that so? Sorry, um, Steve. <laughs> no, that's a that's a great question. I think we kind of touched on this a little bit earlier. Um, you know, so the menstrual cycle is a vital sign. Um, the most common vital signs would be like your heart rate, your body temperature, respiratory rate. And I think anyone who's listening, you know, if you go to the doctor and they take your blood pressure and it's too high, I mean, not only does it tell the doctor that something's wrong, but high blood pressure in particular is linked to specific challenges. So it would give the doctor a good starting point to figure out what's wrong with you and help, you know, help the doctor know how to, how to, you know, start working on improving that. So the menstrual cycle can be used in much the same way. So, you know, one of the examples is if you understand what normal healthy mucus patterns look like and understand that at a certain point of your cycle, as you approach ovulation, that's when you're supposed to see mucus, but you're not supposed to see discharge every single day. Then if you do notice a shift and a change to seeing some sort of discharge every single day, then that can be a sign of an infection. And so from a very basic level, understanding your cycle can help with things like that. But then, you know, on the flip side, to take it a little step further, you know, as a woman of reproductive age, um, having a healthy menstrual cycle is a normal part of how the body works. Um, and this is why we see so many issues that are seemingly unrelated when women are taking contraception, because we're kind of sold this idea that the um, that the reproductive system is kind of separate from ourselves. So, oh, if you don't want to get pregnant, just take the pill and it'll just shut down your ovulation. And you kind of think like, and it won't have any effect on any other part of my life because obviously my uterus is just <laughs> somehow separate to my body. But when you see that, you know, many women who take contraceptives do have things like depression, low libido, 
it interferes with how their body is um, uh, processing and methylating different vitamins and nutrients, mm -hmm. causing you know, a slew of deficiencies in certain areas and having all these effects on sexual function, then you have to kind of think about that, you know? Um, so I'm trying to think of, I, I shared one example of um, if like hypothalamic amenorrhea, like when someone stops menstruating altogether, I think we're most familiar with that in the concept of sport. Yeah, so I was, I think was thinking it. more to professional athletes, like you often hear that they lose their periods or whatever, when they're really, you know, training and super lean and whatnot. Well, and you kind of like, I feel like the way that it's presented is that it's kind of like to be expected, like it's kind of normal. <laughs> and so I feel like the osteoporosis example makes it clear that it's not normal because women who lose their periods for six months or more are at a lifetime higher risk of developing osteoporosis because what's really happening is that you're not getting enough overall, like you have an energy deficit. So it's either you're exercising more than what you're consuming or you're under consuming. And so your body is starving basically. And um, then our bodies are highly intelligent. So they respond by not putting additional stress. Cause obviously if you, if you're not even consuming enough energy to support your own body, um, getting pregnant and supporting a baby wouldn't be ideal. So your body kind of takes that off the table. Um, and you know, there's other examples of that. I think polycystic ovary syndrome is an interesting example as well. Um, so PCOS, um, the way that it shows up in the menstrual cycle are these long irregular cycles. So having a really delayed ovulation. And so sometimes women will have cycles ranging from 40 days to 50 days to 60 days. And PCOS is characterized by inflammation. It's characterized by glucose uh, resistance or glucose intolerance and insulin resistance. And uh, women who have PCOS are much more likely to develop type 2 diabetes down the road. So many consider it to be a metabolic condition. So having a cycle that like... I, I kind of mentioned that the regular cycle falls somewhere between 24 to 35 days with an average of about 29 days. So that means that even if your cycle is just way off base, that in itself is a sign of potentially an underlying health issue. And we don't often think of our menstrual cycles like that because as a woman too, there's a lot of negative um, just information and energy around the menstrual cycle we're kind of told, well, it's normal for it to be painful and, oh, it's, you know, dragon time around that mm -hmm. month. And so we kind of have this expectation for the period to just be this horrible thing, to be painful, to be irritable, all that kind of stuff. And so um, when we have issues with it and the doctor suggests that we go on the pill to quote regulate it or take care of it, or even get rid of it altogether, we're, you know, I think a lot of women are often happy about that because it's like, well, this period thing is so annoying and it's, um, it's messy, it's this, it's that, all these negative connotations. And we never really get the opportunity to understand how important it is and, and why it's linked to our overall health. Wow. wow. Yeah, because society at large kind of has this real negative take on it. It's never kind of, you know, supported. It's never kind of given this sense of it's the, the epitome of what it is to be female. It's the, you know, it's it's part of what it, the essence of it. And I've never heard of it considered as the fifth vital sign, but I think that's beautiful. I, I wonder if you could talk about the, the, the sorry, start of that question, question I interrupted. Uh, about the contraceptive pill and just the <laughs> and side I loved effects. your answer to that one. So thank you. I'm so glad I interrupted. That was brilliant. Sorry, Stephen. Uh, no, no, brilliant. <laughs> thank you, David. <laughs> but in terms of the contraception pill, it's often seen as this 
panacea. It's seen everyone does it. There's no side effects. Of course you take it. And if that one doesn't work, you take a different one and you'd be grand. And why would I bother trying that FAM, natural, old, you know, traditional, you know, antiquated method when, you know, modern science has, I take this pill and my ill has gone away. No more period pain. Woohoo. I wonder if you could talk about the challenges of that and the side effects and just the other side that we're not often told. Yeah, that's such a good question. And so important, obviously. Uh, it's a it's an interesting, tricky subject, because as you had said, you know, the, the pill is linked to women's lib and this whole sexual revolution. Thing. And women lib, you mean women's libido? Liberation. Oh, liberation. <laughs> liberation. Oh, sorry, I was thinking libido. <laughs> okay. so I put my foot like, in it again. <laughs> but it is linked to women's libido as well. What a- well, but not in the way we would want. But but yes. Um, so I think that it makes it kind of tricky. I think it's a little easier in today's day and age than maybe even 10, 15 years ago to talk about it. Um, cause you know, I feel like I used to get, people used to pounce on me a little bit more. I'm like, she's anti-pill, she's anti-feminist, that kind of thing. Um, but I think, yeah, I think it's really important not to be scared to talk about it. Even if we look at the research on side effects in general in the pill, um, there was one study that I looked at that particularly irritated me, um, where they, they, I think the, the title of the study was something about um, they were trying to understand the characteristics of women who complained about contraceptives, which is already irritating me because I'm like, well, why are you doing that? Like you're trying to find out who complains and what kind of people they are. And what the study found was that about 50% of the women who took the contraceptives had side effects. And they, these were um, a variety of side effects, including sexual side effects. So low libido, um, reduced sensation reduced ability to orgasm. Um, I mean, I think some of the most common side effects include depression and the libido. And kind of one of the running jokes about hormonal contraceptives is that it works because it makes you not want to have sex anymore. But everybody does not have... <laughs> Good joke. <laughs> <laughs> it's like not even a funny joke, right? But it's no. unfortunately true. But, um, but the important thing though is that there are women listening right now who are like, well, I've been using the pill for a long time and I haven't had it side effects. So you know, in that particular study, it was 50%. So there are women who use contraceptives who don't have as overt kind of negative side effects. I think that's important to point out. Um, and what happened is, the what was interesting about the conclusion that the researchers drew was that the researchers concluded that um, it's difficult for physicians to recommend the most effective methods without unduly discouraging the women to use it if they disclose the side effects. Wow. So they were more concerned about how hard it is for the doctors to <laughs> um, find a balance between telling women the truth about the side effects and you know, promoting these methods and nowhere in that particular step, like 50%, like if, if you, if you have a drug and half of the people are completely unsatisfied and it has all of these negative effects for half of the population, you know, wouldn't anybody be asking like, can we do better? Could we maybe improve it? Could we do a formulation that's not just designed to be different enough so that we can have the patent, but that's actually designed to be better, you know, in terms of the experience that women are having. I think the the part of the conversation that is often missing with contraceptives is that every everyone who takes them doesn't have a good experience. You know, I've I've worked with and you could anyone could argue that I see a different part of the population because I see often the part of the population who's unsatisfied, who didn't have a good experience, you know. But there are women out there who have had really negative experiences. You know, I have this kind of ongoing pill series on my podcast. Um, and I also interview clients and things like that on my show. 
And so I've, I, I mean, I'm just a small sample size. In terms of the side effects women experience, they range from things that we would consider not that serious, you know, things like vaginal dryness and the low libido thing. I think a lot of people would probably pass off um, to depression and anxiety um, and what that can look like to, for some women are panic attacks. And it doesn't always happen right away. So some women start taking their contraceptive and then, you know, within a couple of days, <laughs> they kind of start having these um, reactions. Other, I've spoken to women who don't start having reactions until they've been taking the contraceptive for years. So two, three, four or five years in, they start having panic attacks. Um, wow. I have spoken to a couple of women who've had strokes. Now, these are obviously the more um, rare and extreme side effects. Uh, but there is a study that I was looking at that said mm -hmm. that, you know, based on just, you know, all the women in the States who are using the pill um, every year, about three to 400 women die of strokes in the U S alone. And in the, 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 the study, you know, the researcher compared that to like, if a jumbo jet crashed every year. Um, so, I mean, not to be like a total Debbie Downer, right. To talk about that, but it's real. There are women who have strokes and blood clots and pulmonary pulmonary embolisms and some really serious, severe side effects, even though they're more rare, they do happen. So, you know, to kind of bring it together, I think that's the other side of the story. Um, a lot of women have negative experiences with it. And unfortunately, many of these women, when they have their negative experience, even if it's like they go on the pill, it's a common thing, actually, women go on the pill and they start having yeast infections. And then they go to their doctor and their doctor gives them like an antifungal and then they get bacterial vaginosis. And then they have this thing like over and over again until they come off the pill or until it subsides. There's a lot of stuff that happens. And so the problem is that when these women are not presented with any other alternative other than contraceptives, many of them feel trapped because they, they, they know that this thing isn't, their body isn't reacting well to it, but they feel like they have no other option. Wow. And does, does taking the pill, like if someone takes a pill, like a hormonal contraceptive, a female or women, obviously not a male, but um, does it affect their possibility of getting pregnant in the future? Because you said it builds up a kind of a, a, a kind of a, a, a you know, a, inertia. A, no, it prevents sperm or it builds up resistance to sperm, which obviously if you want to get pregnant, you don't want to be resistant to sperm. <laughs> also, I mean, I think the, the good news is that in the research, there's no information that I've come across that would indicate that these effects are permanent. So the three main modes of action for most contraceptives, hormonal contraceptives, um, most, not all. So um, most contraceptives do suppress ovulation. Um, so they prevent that from happening by interfering with the normal dialogue that's going on between the hypoth uh, hypothalamus, pituitary, um, and ovaries. And, you know, then the second mode of action would be thinning of the endometrial lining. So most hormonal contraceptives cause that, you know, inner uterine lining to be very, very thin. So even if something were to happen, the egg wouldn't really have anywhere to implant. And then also um, a third mode of action is to actually cause that cervix to be filled with a thick mucus plug to be a barrier to sperm. Um, so that's what's happening. But when, um, when a woman comes off the contraception, you know, that, it, that doesn't linger forever. One of the, the challenges though, and I think this is the important thing that I try to come uh, put across, there's no 
evidence really that I've seen that would indicate that these effects are permanent. But what does happen is there is this, you know, temporary transition period that women go through. So there was one study that I was looking at where they had um, the participants on a whole, you know, different contraceptive methods. So there was the group not on hormones, they had been using condoms. There was a group on the, the pill, which is a combined synthetic estrogen, progestin, contraceptive. Um, so that's the most common, like that's the same thing that's in like the patch and the ring and all that kind of stuff. And they had, um, you know, women using the ID. And so they, they had these, and then also the shots. So the women who were using condoms, so they weren't using hormonal methods, the average time to conception was four months. The women who were using the, the pill, who had come off of it, the average time to conception was eight months. And then the women who were using the shot, the shot has the, the longest transition period. So it was 18 months. Um, and I think this is the point that I try to make, you know, so picture this from a typical woman's perspective. I mean, most of us are trying to not get pregnant while we're doing our school and setting up our lives, um, stabilizing ourselves, getting our jobs together. And so many of us are waiting, you know, until we're in our late 20s, 30s, sometimes even late 30s to conceive. We've been actively avoiding pregnancy for sometimes decades, terrified of pregnancy the whole time. And so when you come off the pill, especially after a lifetime of being told we can conceive, you know, on the warm bus seat, um, <laughs> then you expect to get pregnant right away. And you might be fine that first cycle that you've tried and you don't get pregnant, but even by the second or third cycle, like the second or third time you get your period and you're not pregnant, I think a lot of women start freaking out because we've been told that we could just get pregnant so easily. Um, so the fact that it could take twice as long when you come off the pill, I think for a lot of people, we don't really consider what that could really mean. Um, and I think the bigger problem isn't that the pill causes fertility issues, but you know, if a woman does have issues with her cycle, so we kind of touched on that. Let's say she's got like long, irregular cycle. So she's getting her period every 60 days. If she goes on the pill, most likely what happens is she gets a bleed every 30 days, which is not the same as her period. But when she comes off the pill, she didn't fix whatever that problem was. You know, if she was getting her period every 60 days, it's a sign of an underlying problem. So if she was on the pill and she comes off of it, you know, that problem didn't get fixed. So the pill can actually mask problems. So there are people who come off the pill and can't get pregnant. It's not that the pill caused them not to be able to get pregnant, but if they had an underlying issue, they basically shut off that vital sign. So they wouldn't really know the true status of that problem until almost they like off. disconnection can, can i can i ask a question here which i'm peppering to ask you it's like see it. you're like I, I, I nearly held up my hand please 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 ask me uh like you know the way uh often uh, like a lot of people women that i know they go on the pill because they have really painful periods and the pill is a way of kind of suppressing that pain and i wonder is a really painful period a sign is it like the body telling us something you know the way you said vital sign like our menstrual cycle is a vital sign like could you talk about painful periods because so many women that I like friends and they just have really painful periods and what can we do about this and what's the story with it and what information and is, can I add on a PPS on that in traditional cultures like more indigenous cultures did they have painful periods too or is this something of modern day kind of industrial Stressful. city life urban living I wonder well it's such a great question I mean um, in terms of like the connection to ancestral populations. So, you know, I haven't specifically looked at research in that area. I feel like my 
inclination would be to think that it probably wasn't as prevalent. Um, and I would, my inclination to think that would be because of some of the causes of pain. So in terms of period pain, I think the first thing that needs to be said is that although it's very, very common for women to experience pain, that doesn't make it normal or healthy. There's a lot of things that are common that are not necessarily healthy. So unfortunately, though, as women, we've been taught that that's just how periods are. And to the point where I have to have a specific question on my intakes to really bring that out, because, you know, it's something that so many women deal with and struggle with that we don't even necessarily even bring it up when we're seeking help for other medical or other issues. Um, so, you know, I suffered from really painful periods for since my first one, actually, that was why I, I went on the pill when I was in my teens. Um, so I can certainly uh, relate and I have a lot of empathy because I've been on the floor. And just as a personal aside, when I was in my teens and early 20s and I would have really painful periods, um, they were just, it was completely out of hand. Like I remember being on the floor and thinking to myself, like, this is like labor without a baby, being really mad. And then I went on to have, you know, two children vaginally. And my personal experience was that the first stages of labor were easier to manage than my period pain because the labor comes in waves, at least mine did. So you'd have these surges of contractions, but it wouldn't just last all day. <laughs> um, so anyways, I just want to validate that because um, there's still an issue even to this day of women going to seeking uh, seek support from health professionals because their periods are so painful and basically they're being told like, oh, it can't possibly be that bad. Um, and, and yes, it can. Um, so in terms of, I think this is one of the biggest challenges, especially with the pill. Cause, um, if I'm going to get like social media, hate, <laughs> hate comments, it's going to be from women who had painful periods and the pill was the only thing that helped them. So the first thing is that every woman with painful periods, like some women, the pill doesn't actually help them. So I feel like that's something that should be said. <laughs> um, some women go on the pill and the pill doesn't totally get rid of all their pain. Um, but I think many women find some relief. So to your point about the vital sign aspect, yes, we should be looking at pain as a problem. And I feel like outside of childbirth, when would we actually think that pain is okay? Like imagine as, as you guys imagine as two men, if you had severe pain in your penis to the point that you couldn't walk and you needed to lie down for like three, two, two to three days of every month. Like, do you think society would be like, yeah, that, <laughs> that's totally normal. It's totally okay. And I feel like everyone can attest to that, but like, that's how bad it is for, for women. So, um, you know, to pull it back to like what it could mean in terms of health, health wise, um, you know, not all women that have moderate to severe pain have endometriosis, for example, but a high percentage of them do. So period pain can be a sign of endometriosis, which is a serious debilitating condition that can cause fertility challenges. Um, uh, it's characterized by inflammation and, and sometimes forms different lesions, you know, in the body and can even be outside of the reproductive uh, organs. So one of the challenges, uh, you know, and, and I think I should put out there, I'm anti-pain. So I'm not judging anybody in terms of how they're going to deal with that pain. Um, I just have some questions because I myself had pain. So if you have such severe periods that you need to be on the pill. What happens if one day you want to have a baby? You know, eventually that would mean that you, you have to come off of it. And how are you going to deal with that, the, that pain then? So in some ways, it's, it's really important for us to find ways to be able to manage that pain. 
Um, but I think the pill could potentially be used as a temporary solution for you to manage while you may also be looking at um, working with a functional practitioner to address some of that inflammation and some of those root underlying causes of that pain to try to get you to the point where you can wean yourself off of that and, and manage it in other ways. Um, and then for women who, uh, one of the challenges I think is that if, if you have this pain and you're put on the pill, but not also investigated, then uh, an important diagnosis could be missed. And so I'll just end with the stat, you know, there's, there was a study that was done and, you know, it, it takes on average for a woman with endometriosis, anywhere from eight to 12 years to get a diagnosis. Oh my God. That you said years, not months. Years. Yeah. I thought you were going to say like yeah. eight cycles and I was like, no. oh wow, that's awful. Years. And that's that means ridiculous. these women are going to these doctors and telling them like my pain, it's really bad. Like it can't work, can't function. And they're like, okay, go on the pill. Like, okay, take naproxen. Okay. And they're, and yes, like this is, we need the, the things to manage so we can live our lives, but we also need to be investigated. You know, this is why if we look at the menstrual cycle as a vital sign, then we can't just chalk everything up to being normal. It would prompt us to, yes, we need the pain management for right now. But my question is, like, what are you going to do? Are you just yeah. going to be on it forever? And and what are some of these 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 underlying issues that would be causing the pain? Are there are there endometriosis are, is one, obviously. Okay, can I just ask one thing, just to clarify the pain? Because you know, as we say, like you know, most be- women that have like severe pain, they know exactly, like they experience really really pain. But when you say like the average period, like a healthy, you know, cycle, like what where are they in the pain threshold from zero to ten? Like, is it a one? Is it a two? Like because like as you said, you were on the floor, you must have been like a nine or something. But what would the average healthy period be in terms of pain? Well, in terms like healthy, a healthy period, and I know this is controversial, and of course there's gonna be people who disagree with me, but I would say that a healthy period should have minimal to no pain. So like one to two on the pain scale. Um, and I know that there are women who are listening who they, they've never even thought or imagined in their lives that it would even be possible to have a period without pain because um, I was there. <laughs> um, but I think the first step to addressing this problem is to acknowledge it, to acknowledge that it's a problem, to say, like to have somebody say like, no, it's actually not okay for women to have this much pain. So I'm going to share with you, I have lots of, I'm a science nerd, obviously I've got all this data, but I was reading this, um, this paper And uh, it was really interesting because they actually were measuring the pressure, the uterine pressure between, they were comparing the uterine pressure of a woman who had a normal period with no pain to a woman who was in labor to a woman who had severe period pain. And so they used measurement uh, millimeters of mercury. Like, forgive me if it's not the correct, I know how the study brought me. Um, Anyway, some measurements. Um, this is how they measure the the pressure of uter- uterine contractions in labor. So the whim- the woman who had like normal just period no pain, um, it was like twenty to thirty in terms of the uterine pressure. the The woman in labor, it was like ninety to one hundred. The women with period pain, it was four hundred. Wow. So I remember lot. reading it <laughs> and being just like like. Like, so that was really validating, right? For, for all the women who have pain, because we know that it's that bad for the women who have like really severe pain. But the researchers, this is why I got pissed off. What they said after they had that is that, you know, what these results suggest that when women say to us 
that their period pain feels worse than labor. There may be something to that. And that's it. There may be something to it. 400 to 90. That's quite a difference. So, 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 what, so you said endometriosis is one of the main indicators of having, you know, it's a, it's a sign. You, like if someone has, very, if a woman has very severe period pains, endometriosis could be one possible reason. What are other possible reasons? Like what other information are these painful periods can give us as a vital sign? Well, I mean, generally speaking, it's, it's inflammation, you know. So when you are having these painful periods, generally speaking, I think the simplest way to put it is that it's a sign of inflammation. Um, and there's a lot of different reasons why that can happen. I think it's a lot to do with kind of modern lifestyle and diet. Um, you know, I'm not an anti-dairy person, um, but A1 commercial dairy products cause a lot of problems for, for a lot of women. Um, so there are women who, so there's a difference in the protein. I mean, I think the easiest example is that some kids do better on goats or sheep's milk compared to cow's milk. And that's because goats and sheep milk contain the A2 protein instead of the A1 protein. It's like a whole thing. Um, so some women just being aware of some of those sources of inflammation, I think that could be useful. So for some women cutting out the regular commercial inflammatory dairy could be helpful. Um, and you know, if you're a dairy consumer switching to, um, oh. like a, a different source, but also looking at other sources of inflammation, you know, looking at the industrial seed oils, looking at, um, uh, for people who consume Sugars animal products, like looking at like, stress. like the commercially, like, so there's there, like, I feel like that's one aspect that we should be looking at the sources of Lifestyle inflammation. causes of inflammation. Yeah. Wow, it's such a broad topic. And it's, I've never thought of the sense of the relationship between, not that I've ever menstruated, but the women in my life's menstruation with the sense of their balance. It's a check. It's a vital sign. I think that's amazing. And that's what you've called your book. Your book is the fifth vital sign. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's it's really interesting when you think about it. On, one, on the one hand, if this is new information, it's kind of mind-blowing. But on the other hand, it kind of makes sense. I mean, we can think about it in terms of a lot of different body functions. I mean, if you just stop having bowel movements, <laughs> that's like, yeah. who's going to think that that's okay. Um, and so it, it kind of makes sense if, if we take a moment to step back and think about it, that um, a healthy menstrual cycle would be a sign of healthy functioning. And we should expect more. I think as women, we should expect to be healthy and to thrive. We shouldn't expect to be living in uh, pain and having all of these problems. Um, I think one of the reasons that it's so hard for many uh, to get the support that they need is because of the way our medical system is designed. I mean, even in scientific research, they'll study male bodies, even in terms of some of the uh, pharmaceutical drugs that they bring out into the market, they're studying it on men only. And, you know, there's plenty of examples of how women's bodies, our physiology might react differently. So in, in many ways, when we go to seek support, we're just not as well studied. And so they don't necessarily have as much for us. And that can make it really hard to get help for these things and speak to any woman in your life and ask her if she's ever had any reproductive challenges or period problems and just ask her what her experience has been and you'll hear it for yourself. Here, here. Wow. 
Brilliant. Lisa, you're amazing. Thank you. Final question. I've got a final one because I think this is so important. Like, and you've touched on this before. It's like, and like we've got daughters. I have two daughters. Steve has one daughter. And, you know, they're approaching the teenage years where, you know, we will have to have sex talks and all this type of thing. And I'm also wondering, like, it seems like this is not taught at school. And it would seem like a very basic thing. You know, you do learn about sexual biology and it's usually about a sperm and an egg and, you know, all those very technical kind of terms about it. But like, uh, it doesn't seem like women, young teenage girls are taught about their cycle and what it means and the cervix, you know, all the stuff that we've just learned in the last couple of hours, which has been fascinating. Like, is it taught at schools? Should it be taught at schools? What are your thoughts? Um, I mean, of course, I think it should be taught at schools, but ultimately, who's teaching it? You know, most people don't know the the, the information that we talked about today. And I've certainly had many conversations with health professionals who've gone to medical school or naturopathic college. And of course, they learn about physiology and anatomy, but they're not learning about fertility awareness. They're not learning about the cycle in this way. So I think one of the challenges to expecting this to be taught in schools is expecting that the people who are teaching it have the knowledge to begin with. Um, The way that I've approached this is just by you know, doing what I can to to get the word out there and, and sharing this information and knowledge. Because if we wait until the schools feel like sharing this with the the, the women and the, the all the like I think this is not just about women, right? It affects men too. It affects everybody. Uh, but if we wait until they decide to do it, we'll just keep waiting and if, we could be infertile. But then, <laughs> yeah. According to what we started the conversation with, that's a good natural ending. Lisa, you're amazing. For anyone listening, you, your podcast is called Fertility Friday, and, and you've got over 300 episodes, and it's it's fascinating. We listened to it this morning doing yoga. Oh, amazing! <laughs> that's awesome. Um, yes, Fertility Friday. It's actually almost up to 400 episodes, which is completely crazy. Um, and the topics that we talked about today are. In my book, The Fifth Vital Sign, it's on Amazon and uh, and you can find me on social media as well at Fertility Friday. You're brilliant. I think, you. I think your message is so important. Like I really, really do. I, I We are we are serious fans. So thank you. Oh, thank you so much. I wonder, do you actually listen to the outro? Is anyone there? Hello. We're we based, based, on, based on our Instagram poll. 50% of people are there and 50% are. Okay, well, hello. To those 50. who have left us, thank you. For those who are still here, we love you. We you are, are most great. This is going to be the best bit. It really is. Stephen's going to tell you a really juicy secret. Here you go, Stevie. I've never had a period. <gasps> Okay. No. <laughs> anyway, Good one. not bad. <laughs> anyway, uh, thank that you for listening. Lisa was amazing. I found that so enlightening. I genuinely like society is so mean to women I in agree. so many ways. Like just I, just I, hearing that it takes eight to ten years typically to like diagnose endometriosis, and endometriosis can be so, like as she said, like it can be four times more painful than the early stages of labor. You know, painful periods. So anyway, do check Hope Lisa you got out. Loads of that, Lisa. Uh, is wonderful. She's on Instagram. Her book is called The Fifth Vital Sign. Yeah, I can't wait to read it. a podcast. But, um, so yeah, thanks thanks for listening to this podcast. I hope you got, if you enjoyed this one, you'll definitely enjoy the menopause ones. I thought they were fascinating, the perimenopause ones. This whole series is on sex relationships. Big shout out to the wonderful Sarah Fawcett and Shawnee Cahill who produce, edit, upload this podcast. And uh, thanks to you, the listener, because without you, there would be no podcast. And we love this. We get so much out of it. This is like our, you know, the university. This is like doing our, our MBA of life. Yeah. Anyway, so thanks. Thank anyway, you. Anyway, lots bye of love. Bye 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 bye